What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And a big thank you, huge thank you, the biggest galaxy size thank you to all the patrons and academics who keep this podcast going. If you want to support this podcast, pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and you'll find all the details there. And you can help us keep this podcast on the road for another five years. Mr. D, how are you, sir? Well, um, I'm all right, mate, but today we've decided to do a COVID special because, you know, we've not done a COVID special yet, have you, Mr. Stay? What on earth has been going on in your life today? I got the most randomest text this morning. Yes. I am. I tested positive for COVID this morning. Uh, So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well... It's um, it finally got me. It's don't worry. It's very mild symptoms. I'm not not that bad. I'm, I might be a bit husky. My baby, do my sexy DJ voice, um, <laughs> and uh, I might occasionally flush and get a bit warm. And if I descend into a, a a coughing fit, then I'm sure Dave and JD can do their magic and cut it out. But yeah, my my wife got it a few oh, days ago, and my really? wife and I we're you know occasionally intimate. So it was only a matter of time. <laughs> before i got it so oh. um so yeah uh and it's it's happened in the worst week ever because i've got a book out this week at the time of recording my book is we're recording this on the wednesday and my book's out on the thursday i'm supposed to be doing an event with ben aronovich on friday i'm supposed to be doing another event on the canterbury fringe on saturday i can't visit any bookshops i can't you know go and sign stock or anything like that i am doing the online book launch with Queeve, but lordy lordy it's because when the first book came out, we went into lockdown. So, you know, <laughs> none like... of the bookshops were open. And now the bookshops are open. I can't go anywhere near them, at least not until November the 4th, which is when my quarantine oh, is up. So, <laughs> Mr. Stay, I am absolutely gutted for you. Do you know what's going to happen? No, you cough all you want. You, I want the readers to realize, the readers and listeners, I want them to realize of what a soldier you are having shown up. I, I, okay, folks, honest, honest to God here, I tried to convince Mark not to do the show this morning, but he said, no, let's do this. I want to do it. I'll collapse afterwards. The show afterwards. must go on. The show must go on, right? <laughs> so this, honestly, Mr. Stay, absolute yeah, soldier. Well, you know, but, you know, I, my, I must my admit... It's background. Uh, well, it is, yeah. I mean, you've, you've, but this is ridiculous. I do think, actually, Mark, in, in the annals of time, when our great, great, great gang, gang, grandkids are studying the history of COVID era, they'll be pulling up Wikipedia, or whatever it's called then, and it will show how your books were actually the milestone benchmarks in all the big major events during COVID. You know, it's just like, just what's going to happen when you write the third one, for goodness sake? Oh, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to finish the third one at the moment. You know, my normal writing routine. 
and I'm doing I'm right at the end of of this draft and I'm doing all the timeline stuff which is the thing that requires the most concentration from me and it's really hard it's really hard to concentrate yeah. and focus on the timeline stuff because it's uh, you know it requires a bit of logic if I was just writing a first draft in a kind of fever dream. I, I could imagine some of the best writing I've ever done might come out of that, where, you know, it's like completely off your face. But um, no, I'm drugged up to the eyeballs. And, and as I say in the theatre, Dr. Adrenaline will take care of the rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. But what a week for it to happen, because not only not only have you got a second book in your series coming out, Babes in the Wood, but this week there has been something pretty mega happening as well in your world and any anyone listening to the podcast will have heard us documenting mark's journey over the last oh how this is over a year now isn't it at least we've been talking about your new movie we we wrapped filming we wrapped filming about a year ago a year ago yeah yeah well there was covid drama with all of that and and so i i do remember that Mm -hmm. um you know i said many many eons ago that it would be really great at some point to pull together a little special of all the moments um, along the journey that we've documented of, you know, your, your, your screenplay becoming picked up for a film. And now, you know, what's happened this week? What's the big news? Trailer was released. Trailer Woo-hoo! was released yesterday, which was which was terrific. Really, really exciting, and the poster as well, which was really cool. Um, and it was all sort of carefully stage managed uh, by Warner Brothers. You know, they um, well the day before, I think on Monday, they did a, a little bit with John Wright, the director, in Empire Magazine, sort of queuing people up for it. And then the trailer and the poster went out. And I got to say, reaction in my own little echo chamber of social media has been really really good uh i never look at the comments uh particularly on on youtube for trailers because it's someone talking about marketing you know so i it's they've not seen the film so i can't you know yeah never absolutely yeah generally you know lots of lots of lots of thumbs up and and that kind of thing so um yeah it seemed people seem to like it and uh it's it's really interesting seeing the reaction um from because there are always people who will tell you, oh, it's horror. I can't watch horror, and you know that's fair enough. But I do want to say to them, it's actually more of a monster movie, and it's a lot more fun. The trailer mm-hmm. does make it out to be incredibly scary, but there's a lot of great character and fun stuff in there as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's uh, but yeah, people seem to be really, really excited, and it's lovely because it makes it feel real, and all the work that the cast and crew put into it in you know pretty trying conditions. Um, yeah. is really paying off, you know. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's been wonderful. For me, it, it feels like this massive, massive milestone in a similar way to, I mean, the comparison I guess we can draw with, with book publishing is like, it's like, in some ways, it's like the cover reveal on steroids, isn't it, right? It's, it's, it's I mean, it's <laughs> it's 3D, it's it's full on. And um, it's super exciting. So I think uh, as, as uh, just for a bit of fun, um, I'd like everyone to have a, a little teaser of the trailer, which is a good couple of minutes long, isn't it? But we're just going to give you kind of a, a, a 30 second or so snippet of Mark's new movie. Check this out. There is one thing I need to show you, and it's a little bit peculiar. Every evening before sunset, she'd leave a blood offering here. Sorry, did you say blood? For who? For the red caps. We'll be hungry.
Mr. Stay, there's also something in the... Uh, so anyone who wants to see the rest of that movie... Um, not, well, the movie obviously is coming out in... in can we reveal the, t- the date when it's coming out? I'm not allowed to say. No, no, okay. no The movie's coming out at some point in the future. <laughs> at some point in the future next year. But if you want to see that trailer, you can pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com and go to today's episode on the podcast and you will see the trailer there embedded in the show notes. But Mr. Stay, there's also, when I first saw the trailer, I literally jumped out of my seat and it was nothing to do with the scary monsters. It was something else. It's the scariest bit. It was the scariest bit in the trailer. (laughs) Mr. Stay, you're in the trailer. How did you pull that off? I know. I'm baffled. (laughs) John is baffled. People have been saying, oh, it's nice of John to put you in the trailer, but John doesn't cut the trailer. The the trailer was cut by the Silk Factory, who is, um, they do trailers for Game of Thrones, Walking Dead. In fact, it's worth going to their website and checking out their trailers just to see how much story you can get into 10 seconds. They're really interesting. So I don't know. Someone obviously looked at my flabby, pasty face and thought, that'll get bums on seats. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely brilliant because you're, I mean, I I then looked behind behind you and I was like, oh, I also recognise there's someone we've had on the podcast before and a slight relative to Mr. State. It's like a bit of a family affair, isn't it? Yeah. The whole the whole family are in it. My wife's in it and George is in the trailer. My daughter and her fella Kai, they're in the film as well. Basically, they needed extras for a scene in a pub, um, which, uh, you know, needs people bustling about and you mm. need to see the same faces again and again. Again, thanks to COVID, this very nearly didn't happen. We, um, we, we almost couldn't make, uh, because I got a false positive on set for COVID, was sent home. And uh, it, it almost, you know, but then I tested negative and I was fine. So we were able to to do it in the end. But um, yeah, it, yeah, we're all in there. The, there's various scenes set in a pub, and we're we're in all of those. So I don't know. That I think it's off, brilliant. It's a good. I film. no, I think it's brilliant though because anyone that sees that, anyone following the podcast, will be like, oh wow, this is great. You know, I'll write a screenplay and then get my own movie. But this is really unusual for this to happen. This is not like Alfred Hitchcock, who basically, you know, probably had written in his contract that I absolutely love it. So you live in the dream, Mark. You're back. You're back in the theatre land. The, the the dream that you always had John. of getting on stage. Well, John is very tolerant of my actor ambitions still. (laughs) I've said to him, the only reason I write these bloody scripts is so I can actually get some film credits. What's annoying is I did did have a line and it got cut. So um, anyway, such is life. But it's, uh, yeah, what, what Claire and I are hoping to do is to go to the cinema and see the trailer on the big screen. And when our faces come up, we'll just turn around and look at the people behind us and stare at them and see if we can freak them out. <laughs> oh, that would be brilliant. How long now, generally, how long before a movie comes out does a trailer typically start? I know when you sometimes see these like summer blockbusters, you see you can sometimes see them two years in advance. But what what's typical yeah. for kind of a um, a kind of a, a standard release? What, five or six months, I think. Wow. I mean, I, okay. I don't have an exact date, but we're probably coming February, March, so around about that right. time. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, the, reason, the reason is um, I can't go into details, but there's another film, there's another horror film coming out around about the same time. We had a date, and then this other film was announced. We're like, mm, okay, we're going to give that some room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's all about giving us some room for that. Um, it's <laughs> I can't say too much, but it's it's a story – based on a former guest of the podcast, which is um, ironic. 
Oh, that's so, yeah, very interesting. Yeah. God. <laughs> so we've got plot twists everywhere. We've got co- Mark, Mr. Say getting COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got everything's yeah. happening. This is like, this is un- unfurling as we speak. <laughs> we, better, we better get to the end of the show before something else kicks off. But um, no, uh, for everyone, just a quick, just a quick preview. We just definitely previews this today. Um, we've got a, we've got a really great spotlight. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to our Academy All-Stars uh, interview with Mark Hood, uh, incredible right every day. Um, you know, that's come out as a midweek special uh, last week, actually, if you're listening to this um, at the time of publication. But we have a spotlight for Mark coming up later in the show. So if you want to find out about his book, uh, Agents, by the way, prick up your ears about this one. Um, and we're also going to kind of um, <laughs> mention about uh, back to reality competition that we've got going on. Um, but before we dive into all of that, let's talk about our incredible guest this week. This is a humdinger of an interview, Mark. Tell us about Katie Kahn. Well, we're back in the movie world again. Um, Katie Kahn is a writer from London whose first novel, Hold Back the Stars, was published in 2017, translated into more than 20 languages, and the book was a finalist for the RNA Awards. Uh, Katie's second novel, The Light Between Us, uh, is a story of unrequited love and time travel. Katie has worked in film and television, uh, including uh, head of digital at Paramount Pictures, before joining Warner Brothers to work in film production on a magical British franchise. And you'll hear that I make a joke about that that falls flat on its ass i i laughed my head off when i heard that i i did i thought that was hilarious but yeah (laughs) so maybe it was just the moment i think a lot of people will find that very funny Um, we discuss. <laughs> to be fair, Kate says her her AirPods kept popping out of her ears all through the interview. We discuss how a great X meet Y pitch can help sell your book. What happens when you see similar ideas to yours already out there, and how Katie thinks of story as a chain of visuals. Brilliant stuff. You're going to love this one, folks. Let's settle back, get your cup of tea and coffee at the ready and listen to Mark having a chat with the lovely Katie Kahn. Katie Kahn, welcome to the Best Seller Experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've been listening to it for years. Uh, I think some of my favourite episodes are the on-page punch-ups with editors. Um, I always listen to those like live pitching sessions. Like I know I love that stuff. So uh, it's a real fun. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic stuff. Well, we, we're we delighted to have you on because there's all sorts of stuff to talk about. But I, I want to go right to the beginning, right to the beginning, because we always love a story about an inspirational teacher. So, and I know your writing journey began uh, with Mrs. Murphy. Tell us about Mrs. Murphy. That is right. Mrs. Murphy was my year five teacher uh, at a little primary school in Highgate in North London. And that was back in probably the 80s, maybe 1990, uh, where they didn't, they played fast and loose with the curriculum. So every day at three o'clock, Mrs. Murphy would sit us down on the carpet, probably because she'd had enough of us and wanted us to be quiet. And she would read us fantasy books. Um, and through that year, we went through the great canon of, you know, Alan Garner, uh, Red Wall, uh, and probably the most formative for me was uh, Susan Cooper's The Dark is Rising. And uh, yeah, she would read for us for that last half an hour of the day. Uh, and it was only really quite recently where I was thinking, like, where does this love of fantasy come from? Like, where do I get this? And I could trace it all the way back to being, you know, nine or 10 years old sitting on her carpet. Um, and the good thing for me was that my older brother, uh, he also had Mrs. Murphy as a teacher. So when 
the year finished and I was really sad. And of course, there are many, many, many books. There are five books in the Darkest Rising sequence. I found them all on my older brother's shelf so I could steal them. And he was like, ah, you've been murphied. <laughs> so I'm so, so grateful to that woman. I don't I don't know if teachers still do that. I don't know if they still read, um, you know, non-curriculum books to kids. But it was just, just so, you know, we just used to sit there wide eyed and be sad when the bell rang at the end of school. <laughs> that is that is amazing. I mean, I we had a teacher who uh read um ursula Gwynne's Earthsea, and that was my because so, so many of my contemporaries it's all lord of the rings but for me it was Earthsea. it was always Earthsea. so what were the what were the first uh first writings that you remember when did you first put pen to paper as a as a writer i um i waited a while i wrote i started writing a blog back when i was a I mean, I always wrote as a kid and recently my parents have moved house. So we've unearthed millions and millions of notebooks and we found very, very uh, esoteric stories where it's like writing about uh, Pond Square and Highgate. And then my stories suddenly take a dark turn where, you know, they wake up in the morning and it's filled with eyeballs. And that's why they covered over the pond. So I think I always had a bit of a bonkers imagination as a kid. Um, but it was really it was not that long ago. I would say maybe 2006 where I started started to write a secret blog it felt like blogs were just becoming cool um I was a PA at the BBC um I was a very bad PA not not very organized not good at booking meeting rooms <laughs> and so I started the secret project and that was very rom com you know I was dating in London I was going through a breakup uh, and then dating fooling over in front of boys that kind of thing so it had that Sophie Kinsella shopaholic type of vibe, but it was just this place for me where I could discover my voice. Uh, and then from that, you know, I think I was just on that cusp of being before blogs became big. And so I did build a readership. I think at its peak, maybe 50,000 people were reading it a month or something. Wow. And which back then was huge. And I got a couple of approaches from literary agents and like some agents at Curtis Brown said, you know, interested in writing something like that as a novel. And I thought, I do want to write, but I don't want to write that novel. And I started to have this idea about a couple falling through space. And I thought it would be interesting to combine Harry Met Sally feeling with a futuristic sort of utopian space novel. Um, so then I went away and did that for three or four years and then went back to some of those same agents and said, I did it. And it was not at all what they expected. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that. Your first novel, Hold Back the Stars, it does have an amazing high concept pitch uh, and it's very cinematic as well. T Tell us about Hold Back the Stars and the biggest challenges to writing that book. Yeah, so Hold Back the Stars is a novel about a couple falling in space and they have 90 minutes of air remaining and it's intercut with their love story on the earth. So you see them struggling to fight and survive in space as their air's running out and then you see them on earth beneath them and together their first date, how they break up and how ultimately they've ended up in space. Um, when I sent that out to agents, I described it as gravity meets one day. Um, and then that, that pitch has kind of haunted me throughout its publication, which is great. It's almost like I wrote my own reviews um, by <laughs> suggesting, you know, that that's what it was. Um, so I'm a big, big, big fan of the X meets Y pitch because it did a lot for me uh, with my career. Um, I had this idea about a couple falling in space. And I always used to watch the ISS pass overhead because my parents have, they're on a hill. So they have this amazing station passing. And I woke up and I thought, 
that would be a really cool idea for a novel. But I knew that I didn't quite have enough. And for a while I thought, oh, maybe they're treading water, right? They're in a vacuum. Does it have to be space? But because of my love for the ISS and I'd always followed NASA, you know, this was 2012. So I think this was even just before like Chris Hadfield performed Space Odyssey on, on the International Space Station, you know, just ahead of space coming back really into being quite cool and very much on social media. Um, but I didn't feel like there was a whole novel there. So I sat on it maybe for about six months and then it was, the London 2012 Olympic Games. I was lucky enough to get tickets. I live in London. And I felt like the city just took on this amazing atmosphere. It was mm. so electric. And, uh, you know, everyone was staying out late to watch uh, games and sort of cheering on everyone. And I just felt like London hadn't really felt like that before. Mm. And or at least not in my lifetime. And I thought to write <clears throat> a sort of utopian city or a utopian Europe that felt that way all the time. Um, and that's when I thought, that's the other half of the novel. So I've got that couple in space talking about their relationship and then the other set in a utopian, multicultural version of Europe. Uh, and then I got massive stage fright and terrified myself because that was like a bit much bigger in scope than I ever expected to write. And I did the Faber Academy course uh, that, that September, I think, and started to tackle and get a bit of feedback on that first chapter in space. And then the next chapter, which is very like when Harry met Sally and my couple meet for the first time. And, um, you know, it's all quite a, a different tone. And I wanted to just see if like proof of concept, would they go with it with that like jarring, like chapter one to chapter two. Then I took about three years to finish it. So it wasn't a speedy thing. I was working full time in the film industry. So, um, you know, it was really carving out time 10 till 12 at night, really, when I finished my wow. day job. Um, I work there. I'm a night owl, so it doesn't sound quite as hardcore. I'm a bit older now, so that does sound quite hardcore. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I wrote uh, late at night, and then I started to query it. And luckily, I'd come up with that Gravity Meets one day coach gravity was released while I was writing the novel. Um, and at first that had given me a heart attack because I saw the trailer and I just thought, yeah. Oh. Um, and that was like a oh, moment. And, um, but I conned my way, luckily working in the film industry into a early screening of gravity. So I could just reassure myself. And actually I thought, you know what, this is completely different. This is not a love story. 70% of my novel is set on earth. It's very, very, very different. And um, actually having the comparison to gravity has been nothing but great for me because it helps readers and also the publishing industry to visualize it. If you say it's two people falling in space above earth, they kind of think, oh, I've seen Sandra Bullock and George Clooney do that. So, And publishing likes stuff that is a little bit like something mm. else. So, you know, they very much do. So for me, it actually turned out to be a benefit that that film came out a year or so while I was writing, but before I was going out with agents uh, to publishers. That's something that a lot of um, first-time writers, if they have a great idea and then they'll see someone else has a similar idea, they, there is an, an inclination to, cut, to give up and go, oh, no, it's been done. But so much of storytelling is not about the idea. It's about the expression. It's about the unique voice that a writer has. So was that... Once you'd seen Gravity in that screening, did you feel a lot more confident about your idea? 
Well, I thought for one, if those amazing filmmakers like Alfonso Cuaron and David Heyman, who I ended up working for many years later, if they can want to pursue a story like that, then I know that there's some good juice. It, it's almost like putting two people in a situation and then it's up to the writer to decide how that's going to play out and how it played out for me was so wildly different that it did it did give me heart and I think you know I'm I mentor writers at the novery um a sort of an online and in our first sessions together when we sit down and chat about their ideas quite often it might too similarly resemble something that's already out there but the most fun part of working with writers on their ideas is that I get to say but look at that bit like that's really cool that's that's something a bit fresh in the genre I've not really seen it done that way before like can you lean into that you know what what's there and sort of helping out the bits that are more original but also have some of that familiarity that's comforting to readers often that you know the comfort comes from the genre itself um yeah, I, for me, it was really reassuring. Um, and I often reassure some of my writers, uh, you know, who I'm mentoring that it's fine if it's like something else, but it's about how you tell it and that spin that you're going to put on it, that it's not going to go the same way as how the, the other writer did. When you were at, when you'd finished your first draft, so just so I get the timeline right, you went to the Faber Academy, uh, you did your studies there. You were writing the book while at the academy. Did you finish your draft there? And who were you giving it to to read um, as, as you so, were writing? So, yeah, I think all those many years back, I <laughs> was writing in 2012 and I did the Faber Academy, the six-month course there. I had only written about chapter one or two. And honestly, I didn't really write that much on the course. Um, we were doing a lot of feedback on each other. So there was a lot of reading to do. And I think I really figured out the story and really how it was going to end because there's a strange third act twist structure in that novel. And I don't think I had that until I was kind of finishing the Faber Academy course. Um, so then that was, you know, January 2013, something like that. And I went out to agents in the summer of 2015. So it was really that two years after I'd done the course. The course gave me the confidence to say, you can absolutely do this. You're getting good feedback, you know, from your group. Um, people are interested to read on. Nobody's saying, hell is this? Well, probably they were in their heads. Um, <laughs> um, so then two, two and a half years later, I took it out to agents. Just before I did that, I did ask two readers just to read it through, like beta readers. I picked someone from my Faber group uh, because I felt like she had that editorial eye that she was mm -hmm. also writing. She had a really good eye on story structure. And I just wanted to see particularly that third act that I mentioned that's got quite a unique structure if it completely kicked her out of it and just thought, what is this? Um, so I gave it to someone, you know, with a really good sense of story structure. And then I also gave it to my best friend who is a voracious reader of everything popular. You know, she's the kind of first person who would say, Hey, you got to read this book, Gone Girl. Like, I think it's going to be massive. <laughs> and I thought from a sort of commercial, just straight reader feedback. Um, and then both of them gave me really, really tiny notes. And I thought, you know what, if that's the, the worst that they can do, I'm going to send it out to agents and <laughs> test my luck there. Um, and then that went a little bit better than I expected, actually. And then I, I think I had something like 
three or four days, um, which I did not expect at all. Thoughts and feedback that I was going to go and tweak it, you know, and then and then go out to my number one agent. So when I suddenly had those offers, that's when I was like, oh my god, I'm going to send it to everyone, <laughs> and I sent it to my agent Juliet Mushins. Um, but I remember getting her out of office saying that she'd just gone on holiday the day that I sent it to her um, for two weeks, and so by the time she'd come back, I'd met five other agents and I had offers and I had to email her and be like I'm so sorry I know you were just back from holiday um but I've had five offers of representation I'd really love you to read it would you like to read the whole thing and she did and she read it really fast and I was at a screening in my film job sitting in a dark cinema in the middle of the day and my phone rang and it was a voicemail from Juliet and I remember just surreptitiously like being that awful person who uses their phone in the cinema holding it to my ear to hear the voicemail (laughs) and she was she was crying because she just read the end (laughs) and she offered me representation and I knew that exact moment I thought if I can make her cry wait that sounds terrible if I can make her cry professionally that's the agent for me uh and then I met her and the rest was history but um yeah it was a a really uh it it accelerated really quickly having spent you know two or three years writing the novel the actual route to publication came very quickly for me which I don't think I was quite prepared for (laughs) <laughs> let's let's skip over the the heinous crime of having your phone on in a cinema, uh, but let's talk about your time working in the film industry because you've you worked at uh, Paramount and you worked at Warner Brothers working on and you've been very vague here a magical British franchise is that Paw Patrol? No, because I like <laughs> that joke. Uh, I'm about to burst out laughing and then my earbuds will definitely fall out of my ears. I worked on the Fantastic Beasts series i worked on the wizarding world uh with the new fantastic beast filming uh, at warner brothers studio leavesden uh mm. so just north of london um yeah i was at paramount for maybe i think about four and a half years and then i was at warner brothers until literally last week so another four and a half years um and then before that i also worked in television i worked in the bbc and things like that so it, yeah it, i've been there quite a long time um the one really great thing, I think when people hear the names of the studios, because they're big, you know, classic Hollywood studios, they always imagine that there are hundreds and thousands of people who work there. But actually, when you're based in the UK office at a, at a film studio like that, it's actually a very small team. I would say at Paramount, there were maybe 15 or 20 of us. And what that means is you actually get a really loud voice at the table. And so you're getting to read scripts. And you're getting to sit in the acquisitions meetings where they're deciding whether to release films locally in the UK or not. And so I think that that gave me, so not only that, but combined with my job of, you know, putting the trailers online often at midnight, maybe if they leaked accidentally, um, (laughs) I think it, it really did feed into my writing that I've spent so long in the film industry and particularly while I was writing that first novel Hold Back the Stars and I was at Paramount every day you know doing sort of 60 hour weeks um it gave me I think that I think of novels as chains of visuals so I'll think of an opening scene and what that might look like and feel like and then I'll think a little bit about where that goes next and so with Holback Buzz, um, Karis and Max, my couple, they when they go on their first date, they break into a sort of abandoned observatory and they look at the rings of Saturn. And I had a really strong idea for what that might look like. Um, 
And having been to lots of observatories, I thought, well, what would it look like if those observatories don't move on? But, you know, <laughs> the wheels of time do. And we're living in this futuristic world. But, you know, observatories are still this quite retro place with a big telescope and, you know, like the dome. Um, and it was a really specific vision in my mind. And it was very interesting when I started to have my own film meetings with film producers and things um, talking about adapting Holbeck, the visual that they reach for. Um, and... And so I think that coming up with these chains of visuals, it's sort of, for me, it's also about how I'm moving the structure in place where I'm making sure that I've got enough exciting moments that I can remember what they look like. And when I would be driving home from work, you know, seven, eight o'clock in the evening, I often use that as the transition from my day job to my night job of writing, where as I was driving, I'd be like, okay, so you've got a couple falling in space, everything's black and you can see the earth beneath and that sort of technicolor, like we, we've got to see now with, uh, you know, particularly with NASA or on social media. And then you've got two people, they're going to come into focus. Okay, great. And then what would that look like when we then see them on earth? Okay. It's a futuristic version of Europe, but maybe particularly in Europe, I think the first scene is sort of set in Barcelona. You've got this beautiful pair of buildings. How would we maintain and look after those rather than having that kind of CGI type of futuristic world where everything's a bit green screeny. For me, I thought, well, it would be beautiful to keep all like the Victorian and Georgian buildings, but almost do a bit of a grand designs on them and surround them in, you know, glass and steel to hold them up and protect them and keep them safe. And I was like, that's quite a cool visual. All right. And then next, you know, we're going to see them uh, try and do something cool with their air in their packs to try and preserve it a bit longer. And right, that's what that scene will look like in space. And then we're going to have that first date in the observatory. And I think that that really is my film background is like chaining together the kind of visuals you might see in a trailer. Um, and I think even in Save the Cat, that's what Blake Snyder says, you know, when he calls it like the promise of the premise, yes. he's like, you know, imagine you were making a trailer of your book. What though, you know, what scenes would you have in there? That's sort of how... I think together the whole, like a chain of visuals. Um, so that's always worked for me. And I think sometimes it's also helped me identify when maybe I don't have something king enough because I can't imagine what it looks like or it's all a bit samey. So with the thing that I'm writing at the moment, I would definitely have it the same. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I need a radical like change of scenery. Like I'm going to have to move the cafe place for the second act because otherwise two-thirds of the book is going to look exactly the same. That's interesting. I was uh, Because we do one-to-ones on, on the Best Seller Academy, and I was talking to an author yesterday who's working on their synopsis. And so often with a synopsis, it can read just like a chain of events, you know. And for me, I was saying, dude, think of it as a trailer. You're selling the sizzle. Pile on the hyperbole. This has to be the most emotional, roller coaster, exciting thing you can you can ever pitch and don't you know? Don't hold back on that. Make it as as thrilling as it can be, and that's uh, that's as you've worked in film, I've worked in publishing, and that idea of selling yourself and selling your ideas and selling your story, it can be very difficult for an author, can't it? Mm, absolutely. I find that when I tutor writers at the novelry, that the first thing they have is that they come to me with quite a lot of fear. They're scared, you know, and maybe it's the first time that they've ever talked with somebody about their story aloud and so the first part is getting them used to that and then the second part is really trying to narrow down what's your story about and 
we ask them to d- describe their novel in like 500 words uh, and that throws everyone either mm. you know someone wants to send you the 7,000 opus or they've never actually thought through you know almost their novel as bullet points and seen that bare bone um, but the other part of it is really about trying to get early that premise that hook one-line pitch that we hear so much about and I don't think that you can develop that early enough and actually you know if I'm really honest if I look at some of my projects where maybe it hasn't worked out so well I didn't quite have that I tried to retrofit it really late on in the process you know and come up with that zingy one line at that gravity meets one day line I've tried to retrofit that at the end but actually if you've got that while you're writing it if you're starting to uncover that you know and if you can start to make those comparisons because we know publishing loves a comparison to something that's already been quite successful um and I think you're already onto a bit of a winner and it formulates it in your mind you know, it can sound that it might be a, a little bit limiting to say, uh, this is my story in one in one pithy line, but actually it's really useful because if the as you're writing out the first draft and it's maybe a little bit sprawling and you're going a bit off piste, it focuses your brain to think, am I telling that story that I said yes. I am? Yeah. You know, like, am I delivering the promise of the premise? Um, and so I think that that's really, really valuable work, like story, 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 but also how do you explain it? Because if you can describe your work in one line, to somebody else then that means you can sell it to agents that way and that's how you can describe it to them and that means that an agent can say that to a publisher and that means that the editor who wants to acquire your book can say that to the sales team in the acquisitions meeting and the sales team can say it to stones and amazon you know and then suddenly you're stopped in tesco and everybody's happy so (laughs) it's only good work to start thinking really 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 early on about how you would describe your novel in one line and very much you know that's what screenwriters are trained to do the log line for screenwriting is everything and i do find it funny that novelists think that that's marketing and they think that that's not their remit because I think it absolutely is it it gives you that singularity in your novel that actually when we look at some of the big classics they do have that singularity um I spent a lot of last year reading things like Silence of the Lambs and like from that opening line it's really Mm -hmm. clear what that's going to be um you know and and I think that it's it's a funny thing in in creative writing that we think sometimes that selling yourself is marketing, but actually it's only going to make your storytelling that bit stronger. And I think screenwriters are slightly ahead of the curve there. Fantastic advice. Uh, Normally at this part of the interview, I would ask what you're doing next, but I saw a tweet of yours recently where you said it's late. So I'm going to confide in myself via the medium of this tweet that what I'm writing at the moment is completely and utterly that shit. Um, you did then follow up with the tweet, so asking yourself to remind yourself to delete that tweet in case your agent saw it. But it's still there, Katie. So can you can you give us any clue as to what's coming next? I, do you know, I always hedge my bets, not in a bad way, but mainly because I did write a novel last year that I ended up shelving, and so I'm very glad that I didn't go out and talk too much about it. But I'm having a great time with what I'm writing and I'm writing a novel with a speculative twist um but I'm trying to let loose my need to write uh stuff where I throw fantastical elements at a novel you know in Hold Back the Stars not only have you got a couple falling in space but you've got this multicultural utopian earth there's like meteor showers asteroid fields like there is a lot going on in that novel as well as you know tricksy structure and I think with the third novel that I'm writing I love novels where at the end 
it sort of leaves the question up to the reader. Like, well, was that supernatural or was right. it not? Was right. something fantastical and science fiction happening or was it not? You know, is there a totally rational explanation? Well, it's kind of up to you. Um, I really love books that do that. Like off the top of my head, something like um, Once Upon a River by Diane Sessfield does that in a really, really nice way uh, where the character finds a rational explanation for like a miracle, um, which I really love. To you as a reader, which one you want? So um, I'm playing with that at the moment. I'm about 60,000 words in. So now I just got to chug on to the end and then it's going to need an absolute ton of work I have a page of edit notes for myself that is almost longer than the novel where I'm like next time remember to look at this and fix this and oh my goodness what were you thinking there um but it is slightly mad I feel like after the year of year and a half of pandemic and living at home um I feel like particularly in this type of genre I think it was Emily St John Mandel who wrote Station Eleven she's announced her new book and she said something like it's crazy written in the pandemic and I think a lot of us you know freeing our imagination is kind of how we're bouncing back from the absolute strangeness we've had of living through this kind of global event so uh, for me this is my escape but I'm having a great time Sounds fantastic can't wait Katie can't, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and hope to speak to you again real soon Thanks so much, Mark. Take care. Oh, fantastic. I always I always do love a guest that comes on and the first thing they say is how much they love the podcast. I mean, it's guaranteed to make us just fall in love with <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. But then she followed up with such a brilliant story about, about teachers. I always love, love to hear about how people have inspired people's lives but this teacher that, that katie had sounds like she was she was a bit of a fancy fan i think because i know a lot of teachers um you know often like to bring in books that they most enjoy and yeah. what, a, what a great introduction to that world yes we all need a mrs murphy don't we um someone who goes someone who goes a bit off curriculum and again i'm not sure if you can really do that these days they're quite strict about what you can and can't teach which is a bit of a shame um but yeah it's and i've got um Weirdly, uh, the teacher who uh, read Ursula Le Guin to us and encouraged us to read them, she, uh, you know, she lives not far from me up here. She lives in Broadstairs, you know. So it's um, these things make a hell of a difference. They stay with you, you know. Forty odd years later, I'm still inspired by by reading those books and by that teacher. So it's um, it makes a hell of a difference. It really it does. does. I think I think for me, it's it's the um, the compounding. You know, when we're really young obviously we're, we're very open to, to lots of new things. We're, we're always you know, adventurous and excited about the world. But I think it's the moments that when, when we're very young that, that kind of extrapolate over the years, that compound over the years. And um, that's why I think teachers are such incredible people. It's like they, they it's sometimes they don't realize just how much effect that they've had on a young mind and a teacher who's willing to kind of go a bit outside the box and, mm. and, and really make a difference and introduce these new, new, you know, stories and even the idea of writing or telling a child that's like got potential or even is struggling, you know, encouraging them to keep trying and writing. All these little things compound over the years, you know, to the point where you hear someone like Katie talking about Miss Murphy mm -hmm. as, as uh, an incredible influence in her life. And I think as for a teacher to hear that, I'd love, I'd love it mm -hmm. if, if Mrs. Murphy's out there and she hears this, um, you know, drop us a line, drop <laughs> us a line, tell us what it was like to hear one of your former students um, talking about how much how much impact you had on her writing. And um, so, yeah, I just want to honour all teachers out there because I think it's a hard job. 
I mean, I, I struggle sometimes with three kids mm. in the house. I don't know how teachers do it with 20, 30, 35 in some cases, even more te- uh, kids that they have in the classrooms now. And um, I do think that stories can mesmerize kids. It's actually a really powerful way to kind of hold their attention. I know my daughter, she, they're currently reading um, a, a book by Alan Gratz, who's a brilliant author, brilliant children's author. And it's pretty hard going stuff. It's about war. It's about 9-11, you know, and she's in, she's only 12, you know, and they're, they, they're getting these pretty incredible stories. But, you know, it's really opened her eyes to this and she's now reading them at home and it's just brilliant. Absolutely love it. Did you have a teacher who was um, who introduced you to fantasy as well, Mark? Or did you get into fantasy kind of on your own accord? Like I said, you I mentioned didn't you? Yeah. Maloney. She, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she read a social Lilligren. Um, So that again made a huge difference. Uh, I had a Mrs. Wright at Thurfield. She was a really good English teacher. Um, she encouraged me to um, to to sort of focus on on character and style a bit more. Uh, so yeah, you do, you, you definitely remember these teachers. They always make, make it, make an impact. Yeah. I remember all my English teachers, actually, they, I, I did English all the way through to, to sixth form and A level. I was actually talking about how we studied, uh, Schindler's List and then King Lear, which was quite, quite a kind of interesting contrast of books, but, um, always found it fascinating. And, and I must say every so single English teacher I've ever had absolutely loved their subject. They absolutely, and I know it's weird to say that, but I know there's some teachers out there that kind of have to teach subjects that maybe isn't their, isn't their thing. Um, but every English teacher I had always was was massively geography. into it. <laughs> I like geography actually. Geography. Big shout out to Mrs. Brown. I had a great, I had a great time in geography. We had good fun. Now, um, <laughs> one of the things, one of the things that I found fascinating um, that that Katie talked about was um, this idea of of her background in film. Um, she mentioned about. You know, and she could tell actually that that she's very much on that on that wavelength when it comes to things like log lines and pitches. And there was such a great analogy that she gave yes. about getting yeah, that yeah. one line pitch in as early as possible. Yeah, and and what I loved is she said, "It's like writing your own reviews." And you know, with Back to Reality, we sort of pitched it as Back to the Future meets Freaky Friday, which is the line we got from Lucy Vine as well. You know. Um, and that's a great way to encapsulate what it's all about. It, it sum, sums it up. It's very reductive, as most marketing is. Um, with Unwelcome, the film Unwelcome, we pitched it as Straw Dogs meets Gremlins. So you've got the home invasion and monsters. And what's interesting is that's already being quoted in articles. So hmm. it is. It's selling it forward. It's selling the idea yeah. forward. And as a writer, you know, you kind of wince when you have to come up with a reductive shout line for your story. But it can it can really really work. I mean, <clears throat> the witches of Woodville. I've always pitched as um, the last ten minutes of bed knobs and broomsticks. So you got witches and the home front and you know Nazis and people get it. They absolutely get it. And being a Disney film, a lot of people have seen it as well. So um, yeah, if you can come up with that, it really really helps uh, sell it. Sometimes you might not realize until you start getting reviews from readers because sometimes readers will come up with these and if you're doing a series you might think oh i might use that in future but as katie said if you can come up with that before the the you start selling it because funny enough i'm i'm putting together pitches for the next few woodfield books and there's no guarantee they're going to get picked up you know so i'm having to really sell the sizzle on these and one of the first things i'm doing is thinking of okay, what's 
What's the thing that's going to go on the blurb? What's the what's the shout line? What's the thing that's going to grab people and say, okay, this is not only different to the previous ones, but it's got this this added element to it as well. So it's um it's really hard. It's going to take me a week, you know, to sort of come up with this uh, in a way that really sort of zings and swings. So, um, but I'm aware that it makes a, a hell of a difference, and it's something I did for the first three books when I I was pitching them to uh, publishers first time round as well, and it um definitely helps no question well it, it it certainly does and i think that it's, it's interesting actually when we look at the uh, the roadmap on the bestseller academy one of the very first courses that we designed for academates was the the book hook course which is our version of the log line yes um and and it is it's about getting that you know and i like the way that katie actually talked about how once you've got it, I mean, everyone thinks, oh, you know, maybe this isn't the strongest. Just have something. It doesn't matter if it's not the one that's the best one. It's something and you evolve it mm. if you have to and make it better and better if you can. But it's this idea of having some kind of foundation that as you write the book, you can always refer back to it. And it, it, it it's a benchmark, isn't it? It's a test. It's a barometer. It's like, is the story still following this idea? And if not, do I want to keep it? Do I want to keep it to the to the, the book hook? Do I want to keep it tight? Or is it evolving into something where I need to actually look at the book hook and actually mm. change the book hook to suit where it's going? But it's a way of kind of keeping things anchored. Because I think otherwise we're like a we can sometimes be like a a ship that just starts to float around at sea. And the book hook gives you that anchor. So it's really interesting to kind of hear that from from Katie's perspective as well. Yeah, I, I personally prefer I mean the X meets Y thing is always very handy. I prefer to pose it as a sort of thematic question you know can x equals y rather than you know can can you ever do this without doing this kind of thing mm. you propose a sort of dilemma and that becomes your thematic sort of core argument your central dramatic argument for the whole story and i find that that helps me as a writer keep on track as i'm moving through the draft because whenever i get lost i refer back to that and even now right at the the dog end of this draft that i'm about to send out to beta readers it's still you know i'm getting stuck thinking oh what, what's this scene oh back to the theme back to the theme yeah and yeah. it always helps yeah. keep me on track it was also really interesting how katie talked about how the the this this one line pitch is how you sell your book to an agent but it doesn't stop there mm. we forget sometimes that beyond that point you know, the agent sells it to the publisher, the publisher sells it to the sales team and the sales team ultimately sell it to, you know, Amazon and the bookstores out there. And then the bookstores sell it to the reader. It's 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 a kind of direct umbilical cord right the way through the whole process to your reader. And um, when you're competing with so many other novels out there, you do have to get a good, you have to have something that hooks people in because how else is your book going to stand out? So it really goes way, way, way deeper, doesn't it, on many levels? Yeah, it gets paid paid forward. Um, and it helps spread word of mouth as well. It's not, you know, once the readers have the book, then they can say, oh, it's X meets Y, you'll really like this. Sold, you know, it's just, it can be as simple as that. Um, the one of the best authors for this as well. If you go back and listen to our episodes with Steve Kavanagh, he's really good at this. Oh yeah, really, really good. At I this. remember that as a standout episode. Yeah, that was very, very. He was super inspiring. Another thing that that was was actually just a kind of a, a thing that Katie mentioned, which which was just in amongst the discussion you had. But she said, you know, she used the words day job and night job, 
And I thought, how fascinating. Yes. I've never heard, what a great way of thinking about it. Because a lot of people think, oh, I've got, I've got my job, you know, I've got my day job and then I come home and write. But Katie obviously was very much mm. thinking about it from a writing, like professional writer's perspective. Um, and actually I was coaching about this the other day um, on the academy about this idea of, of really embodying this idea of being a professional writer. No one's going to give you a degree that then tells you you're a professional yeah. writer, but it's a mindset thing. And Katie's definitely got it. Cause she said that completely naturally day job, night job. And I love that. I've never heard that said on the podcast before. Mm. Yeah. I and mean, it's, um, it's weird as well, because so much of film is at night as well. So she must be really mingling the two because you're going out to screenings and premieres and stuff like that. But um, yeah, you've got to, carve out time for it i mean i'm not a night person so i always did it on my commute but yeah it's um got it yeah it is a job it's a perfectly valid job and it's like a second job and even though you might not get paid for it for a few years um you know if you're filling out your tax return and you're making money from it it's a job yeah Absolutely. And it's a great mindset shift. Ultimately, I think when people take that step, one of the challenges I said to people in the academy, I said, next time you fill out a form and it asks you what your occupation is, just to play with it, just put down writer or author and see how it feels. And a lot of people did it and they said, oh, it was a really big mental, psychological, positive shift for them. So that was really mm. interesting. Talking though of um, professional I had to do, writers. I had to do that, oh, to do that this morning with the with, I had to do that this morning when I tested positive. You have to put, you know, where's your workplace? I work from home. What do you do? I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> I actually normally just sit in this room and don't come into contact with anyone. Uh, <laughs> so. Don't have to fill out any forms. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. And one other thing that uh, Katie mentioned that was really fascinating was this this auction that she almost got going with agents but she also said within all of this she had her dream agent she had the person that she most wanted to yeah, work yeah. with and i think that's so important to have that person but the way that she connected with her was brilliant because she got so much interest initially and i think it that really when someone's in demand it's really important to remember as an author you have to create scarcity you have to you have to create a deadline most of the time we're on the deadline of of you know the agents and the publishers, they tell us when things are going to happen. But when you're when you're looking for an agent and you do get that situation where you get a lot of interest, she really used it well to her advantage, didn't she, to engage with uh, with Juliet? Yeah, I mean that's something I'm terrible at. I'm you know it's um, <laughs> I, uh, I I tend you know, and I think a lot of authors are like this. You know, if they get the slightest bit of interest, their their first impact is to sort of cling on to the leg of the agent and hang on to them until the, you know they sign a deal so it takes a special kind of um bravery to hang out for that but uh yeah it's uh, and you know she's got Juliet Mushins who's you know super agent uh so um yeah i still i mean i still don't know if i can do that i mean i've got an agent so i'm lucky but if I was going out for an agent again, I still think I'd probably, you know, leap on the first one that would have me. So, um, so yeah, you have to be made of stern stuff. But I think Katie wouldn't have done that if she hadn't have really done her research and identified the agent she most wanted. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think that's the key thing is it's knowing that there is, there's someone who you know or feel could be the right person for you. And if you have that, if they've not showed up in the initial kind of interest, you know, go to them and say, look, I've got this interest and – and then it really does move you up the list in terms of priorities. And as you, you know, as the story kind of unfolded, she was ending up 
you know, Juliet ended up calling her and crying in the middle of the cinema. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> it worked out really, really well. <laughs> Some brilliant stuff. Well, is there anything else that jumped out for you, Mark? I like this idea of novels as chains of visuals, having those big visual moments because we, you know, film, we think of, you know, set pieces and great images and what have you. Whereas with books, we tend to think about the style and the words. But if if you're thinking of your novels, because people will play a movie in their head, or a lot of them will play a movie in their head of what they are reading. And so to think of it in that big widescreen style, I think if that's the kind of novel you're writing, it's really advantageous. It's really something you should uh, you should think about those great iconic moments in your story mm. that you really want to stand out and be remembered. Absolutely, brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much to Katie for coming on the show, and it's uh, I'm very excited to see what where her career goes from here and this interesting book that she's currently working on that she mentioned. But talking of agents, Mister Stay, we have yes. a spotlight today, an Academy spotlight for uh, one of our Academy members. Uh, this is a new feature that we're doing, and today we're talking. This is a this is a, a, a new take. We're actually talking about Mark Hood's novel, and Mark is actually looking for an agent. So this is kind of our mini agent pitch for him on the podcast. Um, so let's talk a bit about the book. I remember, I remember this title. I remember this title from probably about six months ago or so. Absolutely brilliant. The title, Mister State, is longer than that. Longer than that, maybe. The Fairies Want Me Dead, which is a great... And it's a working title for an urban fantasy novel, first in a planned series that Mark's working on, and he's he's seeking an agent to represent him. Now, folks, if you've not heard our um, Academy All-Stars episode, uh, it's it's been out for... Well, again, by the time you're listening to this, it's been out for half a week. We're recording this on the Wednesday. It's been out for a couple of hours, and the feedback already... I mean, we'll talk about it in the social media at the end. It's inspiring people left, right, and centre to, you know, work on their writing streak. And Mark is... I hate... I hate that phrase when people go, oh, he's a machine when someone does something <laughs> consistently. But his, his, his streak is 686 days. He's written 423,000 words so far. Uh, he's not a machine. He's just really passionate about writing. If you, Absolutely. you know, if you're an agent and you're looking for someone who's completely committed to the craft of writing, Mark Hood is your fella. So, uh, he's also working on a sequel to The War of the Worlds, which I'm very excited about. So, um, yeah, but the, the fairies want me dead. The hook is, what does it mean? to be human and what happens when you discover you might not be can richard williams learn the truth about himself before his former mentor destroys the world so yeah all good fun and if you're interested in mark hood he's he's at mark hood on twitter and markhoodwrites.com online he's also got markhoodauthor.com which is what i'm looking at now so maybe check that out too fantastic stuff and best of luck mark and uh agents get in touch mark will get snapped up so make make you move now if you're interested in finding out more about that and mr stay social media mentioned there's a lot going on in social media this week well yeah this is um terrific so uh heather goldsmith we've got a note from heather goldsmith who says so i just finished watching the podcast of mark hood we're also available on youtube uh congrats to you by the way and decided to check what day number my current writing streak is at i was delighted to see as of 27th of October 2021, my current streak is 300 days. Wow. Says, I haven't got a fancy counter on my website. I don't even have a website, but I'm off to look at Mark's. My goal is to get a similar editing streak 
happening. So Heather, good work on that. Do you know what's funny, interesting about Heather, big shout out to Heather. When we started the Writing Buddies program in the Bestseller Academy, Heather was my first writing buddy. And we had a blast that whole month, oh, really? every single day. We were we were sending our work out to each other, and 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 I can I can well believe that Heather's at three hundred days now because she's absolutely brilliant. Every single day, without fail, boom, there was her word count. Uh, so congratulations, Heather. It's great to know you're doing so well. We got Julian Bart, who's in the uh, bestseller group on Facebook, uh, who is at J Author uh, on Twitter. He's on day three hundred. Of the bestseller experience, 200 words a day challenge. He said, yeah, yeah. So Julian's done 300 straight days. He said, thus far, I've produced 317, 460, 317,460 words this year. Basically starting small and maintaining a consistent habit works, Julian. I mean, just amazing. Absolutely, Absolutely brilliant. Fantastic. Brilliant, fantastic. Brilliant stuff. That word bank is overflowing. If you got paid like a... If you got paid in in for every word that you wrote, you know these are these are these are the Elon Musk's and the uh, you know the Jeff Bezos's of this world, aren't they? This and this one, this one's hardcore. So Adam Jarvis uh, got in touch. He said, "Had my wisdom teeth out this morning. Still wrote my two hundred words a day today. My four hundred and fourteenth consecutive day. It really works. The habit is hard to break once it's going." So he said, "So." Kai who lives with us, he had his wisdom teeth out a, a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and this not fun. It is not fun. No. You're drugged up to the eyeballs. <laughs> so yeah, it's um, yeah. Well done, Adam. Fantastic. That's amazing, Adam. I'd love to read those two hundred words. I bet you're the best psychedelic he's ever written. <laughs> <laughs> that is hardcore <laughs> unbelievable but that's the point of the, the 200 word challenge as well as if something happens in your day like you know you have your wisdom teeth pulled you get covid you know all that kind of normal stuff it basically is 200 words you can still do it so brilliant well done to all of you it's fantastic and then on the academy we've got jack Harmon, um who says um five years this is in the wins uh, uh, community. Uh, five years and four and a half drafts, don't ask. And today I've just downloaded a 358-page PDF of my novel onto my laptop. I'm now going to print it out so it looks like a proper manuscript. Then I shall let my beta readers destroy it. Off to celebrate with a lie down, a piece of Battenberg and a cup of tea. It's all about the cake here in Cambridge. <laughs> Battenberg. I haven't had any Battenberg for ages. I love it. Tempted by Fantastic, that, yeah. Jack. That's quite incredible as well. Yeah. I mean, uh, to see to see Jack's journey in the academy, she's absolutely been working away at that. And, you know, that's what we've always said. You keep pushing and the finish line is always in sight. It's always getting closer. That's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic mistake. Well, listen, Mr. Mistake, I think uh I think you should really have a have a nice rest now, sir. Cup of cup of something warm. Yeah, hot water bottle. We're- we're both rewatching Shit's Creek, which is perfect comfort That's telly. Excellent, <laughs> excellent. And listen, I hope, I know I say this from everyone, all the all the friends of the podcast, but I hope you feel better soon. And thank you so much for showing up today. What what, what an absolute legend you are! And uh, if anyone wants to send oh, their thanks yeah. to Mark, I know he accepts uh, hobnobs. Uh, or Patreon subscriptions, <laughs> still- so we can get hobnobs got- for him. Yes. Um, so pop along yeah. to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support if you would like to show your support for Mr. Stay and the podcast and keep keep this show on the road. Um, and Mark, where can people find us on social media? 
Come and find us. Facebook is Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Come and find us at bestsellerexperiment.com. You can drop drop us a line there or sign up to the mailing list. And as always, please subscribe, rate, and review on your podcatcher. Every little rating makes us a little bit more visible. And thank you as always to our editors, Dave and JD. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Now, listen, and if you are signing up to that newsletter, there is a bonus for you all. Do it before the end of November and you will be entered into our competition to win one of three copies of the audiobook of Back to Reality. It's 10 hours of roller coaster rides, fun, laughter, and the odd plot twist here and there. So just sign up to the mailing list. You just go to bestsellerexperiment.com, click on newsletter, put your email address in. And you're good to go. And we'll also update you uh, each week on each new episode we have, plus a few thoughts that we have for the week as well. So do make sure to sign up to that now whilst you're listening. And as well, if you would like to uh, get involved in our season six uh, campaign, which is to launch Back to Reality as a hardcover, and you would like to get your name in the book, uh, all you need to do is go and pledge to order a copy when we release it. And to do that, you simply go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. That's bestsellerexperiment.com bestseller forward slash back to reality. <laughs> Mr. Stay, I hope you have a fantastic, uh, a fantastically better rest of the week and hope you feel better for next week. And uh, keep well, mm. stay warm, and Thank we you. send you all our good wishes. <laughs> And we should say absolutely best of luck with your with your book launch as well. If you want to go and join Mark. Now, this is still happening, right? It's, you said it's still going to happen tomorrow night. Is this right? Yeah. yeah so people yeah. can probably it, watch it the have, replay. It will have by the time this episode goes out. But there's a replay on Facebook and, and uh, YouTube. So Where on Facebook and YouTube specifically would people go? Uh, my YouTube channel, my writer, uh, so it's Mark's Day writer. Uh, for both those but I'll put links in the show notes so you can find great stuff can't wait to see it unfold and good luck with all of that happening over the next couple of days brilliant stuff well listen they say very very goodbye from Mark 1 and goodbye from Mark 2 goodbye (laughs) goodbye (laughs)